and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Uh, while Israel continues its genocide in Gaza, Muslim voices are being censored and the weaponization of anti-Semitism is being ramped up. Some examples of the absurd accusations of anti-Semitism include people shouting free Palestine. People have been arrested for displaying Palestinian flags and others have been thrown out of football grounds for wearing a Palestinian T-shirt, while others have been visited by the police for having the temerity to pin a Palestinian flag in their window. Meanwhile, Zionists have been given free reign to say pretty much whatever they like. And there's certainly no question of the authorities clamping down on people showing the colonial flag of the Zionist entity. Anyway, joining me to discuss this tonight is Abdul Wahib, who's a leading member of Hizbut Tahrir. Hi, Abdul. Thanks for joining us this evening. Hello, Chris, and your audience. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you, mate. It's good to have you. I was wondering if we could maybe start, uh, Abdul, just with your own sort of personal experience, because uh, your organisation, uh, Hizbut Tahrir, has been uh, censored, hasn't it? Just tell us a little bit about that, please. So uh, last week we had our um, social media feeds on meta platforms closed down. So that's Facebook and Instagram. Uh, no warning, uh, just closed down, just like that. Um, to be frank with you, Chris, I think it would be very hard to find anything that crossed a threshold of being even remotely illegal or even remotely in bad taste. I mean, we tend not to put stuff, the most graphic stuff coming out of Palestine on there. Um, so it really does smack of a kind of political censorship, really, uh, that there's no other real cause for it. No, indeed. I mean, and uh, Isbut Tahrir, I don't think, is the only organisation that's that's being uh, targeted. I mean, I know no. before the genocide started uh, in uh, Gaza, although we know that there's been a 75-year campaign of uh, terrorism and, and oppression by the, uh, the Zionist entity, but like, you know, the Islamic Centre... Was, was closed down by the by the charity uh, commission. I mean, how widespread is this, uh, in your opinion, uh, Abdul? This 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 sort of targeting of of, of Muslim voices and Muslim organisations. So I think I think what's very widespread is in the last week, and I'm I'm wondering if this coincides with the um, online security bill coming into law. But in the last week, there have been so many people in the Muslim community who've said that posts that they've shared from other platforms have just disappeared. So there's this, this really eerie, sinister thing when you log on to something like Facebook and you suddenly see a list of empty spaces where there were once videos or posts that were up there. That's really widespread. Um, what I've come across is a couple of pro-Palestinian sites, very famous ones, one called Eye on Palestine and the other one called Goods News Network. Now, I've been following both of these for a very long time. Um, they have some really wonderful content. And when I say wonderful, I mean, there are some really nice positive things that they show about Palestine in times when the bloodshed is not so intense. And, and then when things step up, often for people like me and you, that's often the first way you'll get information about something happening over there. Because, of course, we know you cannot rely on mainstream media for these kind of things. There's a regular pattern, isn't there, that events yeah. kick off, Palestinians are abused, killed, beaten, houses are demolished, nothing is reported on mainstream media. There's then something of a, a, a backlash. And once the Zionist occupiers get a hit back, 
then it hits mainstream media that they've been attacked and then they're going to retaliate to that attack. Um, and so if we don't have these kind of channels, then actually you get much less information and you get a very distorted picture. Um, so both yeah. of those two, I think Goods News Network has been taken down by Meta. And I think Ion, Ion Palestine has been taken on down by one of the social media platforms as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's becoming more common. And I think it, I don't know about you, Chris, but I think a lot of this is around the Palestine issue. I yeah. haven't seen a kind of closing of ranks in Britain between the political class and the and the mainstream media like this since 2003 in the Gulf War. And, and maybe even now it feels more tight that, uh, than it did, that even less room to say anything that's dissenting. And bear in mind, at that time, Britain actually had troops in a foreign country. So you can almost understand some directive from the Ministry of Defence telling the BBC, right, we've got troops on the ground. You mustn't say anything that endangers them. But this is something that feels akin to that. It's almost like um, you, you have to shut off, marginalise, put pressure on voices that are dissenting from this policy, which is frankly a state supported, a, a genocide which is supported by Britain, the United States and the EU. I mean, there's no, what, what I see happening in Gaza is, is an ethnic cleansing. It is, it is a land grab, which is just dressed up as a, a, a defensive operation in, in those terms, that it's a retaliation for an attack. But it seems to me what is being done is a displacement of that population. And if anyone's yeah. moving, they're just going to get killed. Well, I mean, you know, I think it certainly has ratcheted up um, in my anecdotal experience and, and from what I've observed in, in terms of, uh, of targeting. But certainly I know that, you know, Muslim um, voices were being targeted even prior to the, this, this, this latest terrible event that's, that's unfolding in Gaza at the moment. And I, as you may or may not know, Abdul, uh, when, I, uh, when I sued the Labour Party after they suspended me, in part because of my support for the Palestinian uh, cause and, and eventually won the High Court case and, and had my costs um, recovered from, from the party, even though they were trying to get costs from me, believe tonight, even though they lost, lost the, the predominant part of the case. But the point is we set up something called the Left Legal Fighting Fund. And, and so we've helped a lot of other people. And um, uh, some of the people that, that um, we, we've come across and we've given advice to and support for um, are, are people whose children have been targeted as a result mm. of the prevent strategy. And, uh, you know, kids, very smart kids, young kids, you know, making the case for uh, for Palestine and the uh, the oppression that the Palestinian people have been experiencing, and uh, they've been accused of uh, well extremism. They've been accused of being uh, racist. I mean, quite shocking, frankly, that people have been unable, uh, or there's been an attempt to anyway to prevent them, young people, from uh, uh, you know speaking out on uh, you know which is a very hugely important current um, issue of of the day, isn't it? I mean. What do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about the whole prevent strategy? Because I know that there was a lot of criticism right from the day that it ever was first kind of, you know, mooted and then implemented. And, you know, I don't think things have particularly got any better. But what, what's your thoughts about prevent and, and how youngsters are being targeted like that? It's quite shocking. Well, I find it quite shocking anyway. What do you think, Abdul? 
Well, Prevent, of course, came in after the 7-7 bombings in 2005. And the climate it came in was one in which it really wasn't effectively challenged. I mean, I, I'm sorry to say that there were people in the Muslim community who thought that this was something that would help stop violence in some shape or form. They really didn't understand that this was about ideas, this was about beliefs, whether they are political or religious, and hence they engaged with Prevent. And after a few years, it became much more apparent to them that this was something very sinister because they found the Prevent officers that they were cooperating with, whether they were from the police or the council, were starting to quiz them and their congregations in the case of mosques or, or in, in other uh, settings, the, the people that they worked with, their client base, they were starting to quiz them about people's beliefs. And they felt very uncomfortable about that. And then actually over the years, there's been more disengagement from that and more understanding that this is a very sinister policy. It is disproportionately focused on the Muslim community. It effectively started for Muslims and then yeah. it ended up getting widened to the far right because it just there were so many cases coming from the far right. It would have been just kind of ridiculous not to. But this government has kind of pushed it back again towards Muslims. They've argued that the far right, less attention should be given to the far right. But as we know, something that starts with one community doesn't stay there. So prevent as a policy, as a tool, has been used against environmental campaigners, for example, um, and, and others. So these are tools that once the government has them and tries to justify using them, it will use them for anyone that they think that they want to label as extreme. And of course, we know extremism doesn't really have a very good legal no. definition that is robust enough to stand up in court, which is why they use these quasi-legal tools like prevent, which scare people. And the best way to scare people, as you're pointing out, is with their kids, because pre prevent is presented as some kind of safeguarding policy. So that if a kid says something which is controversial in school and they're reported to prevent, then in fact, social services can become involved. Um, and some of the worst cases that we've come across, and there's a very good organization I'd refer your audience to called Prevent Watch, where they actually highlight a lot of these cases and take on a lot of advocacy work for people. But, you know, it's literally um, uh, misunderstandings of what children have said, yeah? Uh, a, a cucumber, a young child using the word cucumber, child from a, a, a non-English speaking household, uh, was interpreted as saying cooker bomb. OK, and, and that was enough to put them down the road to prevent reading verses of the Quran. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know a family where uh, a young man gave a presentation in school which was talking about the history of Islamic civilization. Uh, and in that, he actually explicitly criticized ISIS, okay, in, in his presentation, but he wanted to talk about the greatness of the past history of Islamic civilization. His teacher yes. praised him, his teacher emailed the parents saying, what a wonderful presentation your child did. But another teacher was worried about it and referred the child on to social services. And it ended up being very traumatic for the parents, even though the social services said, this doesn't meet, this is not extremism to us in the end. Mm -hmm. So this is a tool to silence us. Now, I, I've been looking before before the show, I, I've been looking actually at the um, 
the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, she's written to schools to give them advice on how to respond, okay? And she, she it's very interesting, they frame it as the Israel-Hamas conflict. And there's a similar advice that's gone out to school from the uh, board, uh, British Board of Deputies, uh, the Board of Deputies of British Jews. They've written to schools as well. And they also talk about it in terms of a war between Israel and Hamas. Mm. Now, when you frame what's happening in Palestine like that, effectively, if you're against the Zionist bombardment of Gaza and the massacre and the killing of innocent civilians, you've kind of, just because they framed the issue in those terms, you can appear as if you're with a prescribed group, okay? Mm. And that that in itself, that just framing the discussion like that almost immediately shuts, shuts down a certain level of discussion for people on this issue. Uh, and you have to be braver. You have to be more um, precise about what you say. There's almost like no room for speaking emotionally. And in these issues, yeah. people speak very rhetorically, don't we? Everyone speaks rhetorically when it's very emotional. Absolutely. And, 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 and you're expected to speak in almost legal speak uh, in yeah. order to be, be able to justify what you're saying. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems to have got, got worse. And I think you were alluding to that in your uh, earlier uh, response to Abdul. Um, I mean, as for the Board of Deputies, of course, I mean, they, they are an agent of the Israeli embassy. They've admitted as much in their uh, annual report recently. Um, but, you know, with people being arrested for just having a Palestinian T-shirt on and uh, mm -hmm. the sorts of examples that, that you've given and indeed that, that I've given and, and things really getting a lot worse now since October the 7th. I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems to me the instruments of the British state seem to have been captured by the rogue administration in, in Tel Aviv. I mean, what's your thoughts about that? They certainly seem to be, they certainly seem to be uh, very, very biased. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, well, whether it's voluntary or whether it's more sinister than that, I, I don't know. But what, what's your general thoughts about that point? Uh, I, I actually see it a little differently. Uh, I don't believe that the rogue administration in Tel Aviv controls London or Washington. I believe and, and you will understand this because you clearly have some understanding of the history of this issue. I, I, I've always understood that Western colonial powers wanted a colony to achieve their interests in the Middle East. That's what they wanted the Zionist uh, state, the Zionist entity to be, their, their colony, their base in the Middle East. And I really think they are worried about um, the prospects of that. And a lot of this talk about, I mean, they're sending, I, I heard today, I don't know how accurate, they've already sent, the Americans have already sent two aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean. I heard today they might be sending a third, right? Britain has sent a couple of naval ships. The, these are not consistent with trying to defeat a militia, okay? They're, now they talk in terms of a widening of a conflict, Iran, these kind of things. I don't buy that. Iran hasn't really done anything except through its uh, uh, um, uh, using Hezbollah in the past. So it could escalate it through that. But but truthfully, nothing to substantially destabilize the occupation. Um, I think what is if you look at some of the language coming out of President Sisi in Egypt, there is a genuinely worry that the Arab street uh, is unstable 
there's been a lot of talk about that since the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring went up, hope went up, and then there was a great repression. And and actually, people have been saying for the last, at least the last two years, things are things are like a pressure cooker going to go off. And and bear in mind, in 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 these countries, the armed forces come from that street. I, I don't mean the rank, the, the the senior officers who are all vetted by the West. I'm talking about the the grassroots and the middle ranking officers. They come from that same street. And when they see this happening, they, there's a deep sense of shame there that they're not able to go and help. Okay. And I, I think there is a genuine worry that there is a, a, a kind of you know risk of destabilization of the entire project. And but I don't know if you saw it. You remember that devil, Scott Ritter, uh, the former arms inspector from uh, 2003. Who, who was the USA's arms arms inspector in Iraq? He, he he now is a commentator on political things, and he he actually he he described it as a great uh, uh, um, an existential risk to what he called the Israeli experiment. Okay, mm -hmm. because he he pointed out the fact that if this war escalates, if it destabilizes. A huge number of those Zionist occupiers are dual nationals. They aren't going to stay in the region. They're going to leave. And if they leave it, as a project, that occupation is not viable long term. OK, mm. and 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 he was making this point. And I, I actually genuinely think that uh, the reason they've ramped up their rhetoric like this is that these governments here feel an existential threat of losing control of the Middle East. I mean, their colonial project for a century hasn't really worked out. Occupied the lands, divided up the lands, put in proxy rulers, put in this, this occupation in the middle of it. And a century later, the whole place is unstable and none of these states have really matured into functioning states in the way that would allow you to control them economically like you do many other countries in the world okay mm -hmm. um so you look at the average age of some of these rulers and you'll see that you know that there's there's no, nobody obvious to succeed them in some of these places so i think i i, I see it a bit differently uh, and i see this i mean there are elements of you know there are there are ministers who are kind of more Zionists than people who actually live in the occupied lands. Okay. Yeah. Michael Gove, absolutely. Suella Braverman, a, a little while back, was bragging about the fact that her husband is from a Jewish background. Okay, great. She was talking very nicely about how their kids are brought up with Jewish culture and Friday evening meals with the family. Great. She then throws in that uh, he's lived in Israel for a time. And he's, yeah. they've got family members who are part of the IDF, okay? Yeah, I've seen that. Which, 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 which kind of gives you some, there is a bias there with some of these people, but you can't explain that with the fact that there is a closing of ranks in your ex-party as well. And Oh, absolutely. You see, you, you, so, so how it, that kind of consensus, to me, that consensus across the political spectrum is a reflection of this is something which... Britain as a state has a really, really vital interest in, or feels mm. it does, equivalent mm. to 
having their troops in Iraq in 2003? Because I don't remember anything like this since then. I don't remember no. any thing where there's been such a controlled media agenda, controlled political messaging, silencing of voices from the river to the sea. I mean, today, I don't know if you heard, some footballer has been asked to retract saying from the river to the sea, Palestine. Well, I hope he doesn't. Free. I hope he doesn't. Uh, well, it, well and, and at the same time, Zippy Hotovoli, the, the current Israeli ambassador, ambassador to the UK from the Zionist entity, who was a former minister there, in 2015, she said that she wants to see Eretz Israel go from the river to the sea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like okay for one and not okay for another. Well, they, they, the, the, the first Israeli prime minister made that very clear. David Ben-Gurion said that they were, you know, they'll accept the borders that they were pleasantly constituted back in 1948. But ultimately, they want to expand, to, as he referred to, the whole of Israel, the whole of the land of Israel. Yeah. That's been on the cards right from the get-go. I mean, you know, right back to Theodore Herzl and so on. So, you know, that's, that's I think, uh, you know, not, not that surprising. But, you know, you're right. I mean, just in terms of, um, I mean, let's take uh, uh, Joe Biden, the, the current uh, U.S. president, uh, a number of years ago, well before he became even vice president, actually, said that if Israel didn't exist, we'd need to, uh, we'd need to invent it, didn't he? And, uh, you know, going back just in terms of, of, of British history, uh, Ronald Storrs, the uh, former um, British governor of, uh, in, in Jerusalem said that uh, in terms of you know, creating a, a Zionist uh, uh, colony that uh, you know, they wanted to form, form so I think he referred to it as uh, um, f form for England a, a, a loy Jewish, Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially a hostile Arabism. So, so you know, Britain's record, uh, well, I mean, it's clearly... I mean, it goes back to the Balfour Declaration, perhaps even before that. But certainly, you know, it, it's it's got uh, a, a lot to answer for. It seems to to me. And you know, just in terms of whether the state capture or not, I mean, and you said that you know some people in in Parliament and so on, perhaps are more even more Zionist or some of the Zionists. I mean, that's well, let's put it like this. I mean, about eighty percent of the Conservative Party uh, MPs when I was in the House of Commons were members of the so-called Friends of uh, Conservative Friends of Israel. And it was around about 50% of uh, the Labour MPs were in the Labour Friends of Israel. And they were regularly taking trips uh, over to the, uh, the Zionist uh, colony there. But I just wondered what your thoughts were, just in something you mentioned, my former party, uh, the Labour Party. I mean, Sir Keir Starmer, it's quite astonishing, his, his attitude. I mean, he gave his support for a medieval siege, even though he was supposed to be a, a human rights lawyer in his previous life, uh, criminal rights lawyer in his previous uh, life. Uh, I mean, and, uh, and all of the shadow cabinet, you know, giving their um, unqualified support to this appalling, uh, well, what can we call it? I mean, other than a genocide. I mean, and, you know, opposing a, a ceasefire. It's quite shocking, isn't it? I mean, what do you make of Sakia Starmer's attitude? It's quite, for me, I mean, my blood boils every time I see the man on the TV, but, but I mean, mm. what do you make of it? Because, I mean, like you say, the Labour Party, traditionally, I was a 44-year member of the Labour Party. I always thought it was a progressive, you know, a progressive vehicle. Mm. But it's anything but that now, isn't it? Yeah, well, I agree. And I, I, I've actually come across people in the past who've known him personally in his during his legal career, and they're frankly shocked by the transformation. I, I'm less shocked in the sense that I recognise that if somebody wants to be Prime Minister of Britain, they have to sign up to certain red lines in terms of 
British state policies, which which are different to party policies, aren't they? So I, I think this is probably one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn was always going to be fighting an uphill battle, because actually uh, some of his beliefs were, were, as I understand it, really were, were too much for the, the establishment. So I think Keir Starmer, if he wants to be prime minister here, he has to kind of prove to the establishment that he is ruthlessly behind British state foreign policy when it comes to Palestine. And and he's proving it. He's proving it that, that really with the blood of 9,000 people in Gaza who are killed and God only knows how many more who are injured, um, mm. we have not seen genocide live on TV or on our phones ever in our lives. Um, yeah. but people of my generation, your generation, will... will We'll remember hearing the stories coming out of Srebrenica. Um, we will remember the stories about Rwanda breaking and seeing the images. But seeing it like this, I don't think any of us have, have seen it. It is very, very traumatizing for average people, uh, and which is why it's so sanitized, sanitized on mainstream media, actually. Um, uh, and I think, I think Keir Starmer is proving to the British establishment that he is ruthless enough to be Gladstone to uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's Disraeli, if you like. I I've yeah. always felt that the, the mainstream of these two parties are literally two sides of one coin. In, in, in the fringes, you will find independent-minded people, you will find independent-minded voices, but those people tend not to be able to climb up the career ladder because they're free, too free thinking. They don't toe the party line enough. Well, to become prime minister, you don't have just have to toe the party line. You have to toe the state line as well. And I think that's what Keir Starmer is proving. Oh, I think that's that, 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 that's very true. I mean, it certainly was an uphill struggle for Jeremy, but I think Jeremy uh, made it easy for them by not actually uh, sticking to his guns enough and not standing up to the Zionist lobby, not standing up to the establishment, not standing up to the right wing, particularly of the of the Labour Party, continually apologising to the likes of the Board of Deputies it was a disastrous strategy. I made that very clear to Jeremy. I made it very clear to the Socialist Campaign Group as well and said, we have to draw a line in the stand. We have to push back. This is going to end badly. I kept quoting the Pastor Neomola poem, you know, first they came from the communists and I didn't speak out until they eventually went through. They came from the Jews and I didn't speak out and then they came for me and there was nobody left. Well, that's what's happened. That's, you know, they've taken Jeremy out, they've taken Diane Abbott out, now they've taken Andy McDonald Donald out. Um, you know, and you're right, I think, in the sense that, I mean, and you know, Blair did the same trick. But I think that there is a route, or could have been a route, and maybe there will be a route. We have to believe that, don't we? I have to believe that as a socialist, that there is a route for somebody who is honourable, for a party that is honourable, for a party you know, that wants to create a better kind of fairer world, that actually cares about people, that wants to end war. That isn't where the establishment is at. You're right. The state policy is one of a warmongering uh, um, uh, entity that, that, that wants to you know, maintain instability in the world. There's lots of money to be made out of that. But whilst, you know, Jeremy was out of step with those those sociopathic um, uh, voices in the establishment, he wasn't out of step with where I think ordinary people are at. Uh, and I think now, you know, Starmer is 
totally out of step with the Labour Party is totally out of step with, as are the Tory party, obviously, all the political class, with where the people are. That's pretty evident in, on this issue. With the huge numbers of people that we're seeing on the streets, I mean, half a million people in on the streets of London supporting the Palestinian cause. Um, thousands of people in towns and cities all over the country. In my own hometown of Derby, you know, we had two or three thousand people on the street again uh, last weekend, uh, showing solidarity uh, with the Palestinian uh, cause. So, they, so these characters are definitely out of step, and you know, I think you know we have to be hopeful. That by standing together in in solidarity, you know, that we can push back and we can defeat these uh, these negative forces in society. I mean, and um, well, you know, I, I, go on. I, I yeah. think I think what's I think what's so dangerous for them is that um, public confidence in politics generally is very low, and not yeah. just not just in Britain. You look at America. I mean, the, the, the both sides hate each other. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, one side one side has. Um, the least worst Democrat they could find because nobody else could do it. And he really, you know, uh, you know, he really doesn't come up to the mark as, as, as a charismatic figure who can win people. And the other side has Donald Trump. All right. And, and that can be mirrored across Europe as well. When you look at the situation in France, you look at the situation in other European countries, politics is very polarized. My party is with we, we mainly work in the Muslim world and, and actually, one of the things for us is we like show people over there who are working with Hizmet Tahrir and the Muslim world, show people the politics of, of the West, which has always been the, the role model for them for the last, you know, 50 to 100 years. That, oh, yeah, we want to be, we want to be like that. And try and show them that actually, you know what, the, the system can get hijacked by big money. The system can get hijacked so that you have two or three political parties, which basically represent the same thing. The system does get hijacked to protect the few at the expense of the many, and which is why we actually look at an alternative model, which is the Islamic Caliphate model, to be applied in the Muslim world in the modern day. Uh, and, and, and I think it's, it's very hard. I mean, I, I find voices like yours very honorable in, in looking at the picture as it is very accurately and what really trying to work hard to see how it can be fixed. I don't have an easy solution within the current framework here of fixing no. it. What I what I try what we try to offer in, in the Muslim world is to look at a system which is more compatible with our history there, our beliefs there, which is an accountable system. It's an accountable system. It's that we have elections for a ruler. It's not that you don't have an elections for a government. But uh, it, it's a very different model. Uh, maybe yeah. it's a discussion for a different day. No, indeed. I mean, I think there are other models that we need to look at. I mean, I'm being very inspired by the, uh, you know, some of the Latin American examples. You know, Bolivia is a great example. You know, we have the movement towards socialism there, and it's very much a grassroots movement. You know, the elections are important. Getting elected representatives is not uh, seen as an unimportant task. But the most important factor is, is mobilizing the people and, and the solidarity, you know, uh, and building a social movement. And indeed, that's how in Bolivia they were able to overwhelm and overcome a US-backed coup in less than 12 months, forced new elections, and the socialists came back with an even bigger majority than Evo Morales achieved before he was booted out at the point of the gun. Although that's gone slightly slightly pear-shaped, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the president who came in to fill... Uh, Evo Morales's shoes as a socialist candidate, um, uh, you know, this, I think he's, he's lost his way a little bit from what I understand. 
uh, and they're looking for a new new candidate now. But that model, I think, is is a, is, a, is a really good and important one. And just your other point, you know, where you're saying, you know, politics very polarized. It is polarized, but in my opinion, it's, it's performative polarization, though, because the reality is there ain't that much difference, even between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, when it comes down to it, you know, they're both kind of, you know, capitalists, as it were. Uh, they both support the war machine. To some extent, Donald Trump is more of a peacemonger than, than Joe Biden, ironically enough. <laughs> you know, frankly, I think we probably would have had a war in Ukraine were it, uh, uh, you know, were, if we'd got uh, Trump in the, in the White House. Although his position with regard to uh, the Zionist entity is absolutely shockingly appalling, but I'm not sure it's that any, any different to where... You know, Biden would would be, and the same this thing is true here and right across across the piece, really. And that's why I think what we need to to do is what we're trying to do. I mean, I've joined the Workers' Party alongside George Galloway. Now we're, we're sort of trying to build a different alternative uh, vehicle, but it's not easy. And uh, you know, there are all the other systems out there that we do need to 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 examine because the sort of democratic so-called model that we've got at the moment, so-called democratic model, it ain't democracy. At the end of the day, the people that the rep so-called representative democracy, they're not representing the people that you made the point, uh, Abdul, you know, they're representing kind of vested interests, you know, not the interests of the of the ordinary uh, rank and file people. Indeed, if they were doing that, we would have eliminated poverty in this country. Oh, the fifth biggest yeah. or sixth biggest, I think it is now, economy in the world. There's no excuse for anybody to be living in poverty here. But they just want to just move on in the closing uh, minutes, if I can, Abdul, because I know the Daily Mail has been running an appalling you might want to come back as well as other comments and feel free to do so that I've just made. But but just let me ask you this about the Daily Mail has been running a sort of a smear campaign against you. I mean, I've been a bit of a victim of some of these smears myself, so I know what it kind of feels like a little bit. But how have you been kind of standing up to that and, uh, you know, weathering the sort of bullshit that these bastards, uh, excuse my French, are uh, are actually putting out about you? I mean, it is it is a real smear job, hit job, basically, um, you know, um, and they, you know, you see them using all the journalistic techniques to spin a story to make you look like uh, really, really bad, like some kind of really nasty figure, um, and throwing in a few of your responses in the end just to cover themselves. Um, mm. I don't really, to be honest with you, I think what has one of the things that's kept me uh, focused this week is Palestine. Um, really, a smear job on me in this week at this time is very much low down the agenda at the moment. Uh, yeah, I'm having to deal with that personally, and I will do. But it, it, I think the importance of staying focused on what's happening in the Middle East, because I see this as very much one of the tools that's being used to uh, silence voices on this issue. Just to tie together this with the point we were making about change in the Muslim world. You know, um, if if what's happening in Gaza was happening somewhere in the heart of Europe, uh, with the potential for death and destabilization and, and, and people having to flee their homes and refugees being created, there would be no question about a policy of intervening militarily. If there's a if there's a military state level military massacre on a civilian population it's almost impossible to think that anyone would just sit by and say, we, we do nothing. They, they would have by now put in some kind of no-fly zone, a missile zone, they would have stopped supplying arms to the aggressor, et cetera, et cetera. And at the moment, the current way the Muslim world is structured, arms are coming to the Zionists through Jordan, okay? Uh, the border 
that would allow people to get humanitarian aid is being controlled by Egypt. Uh, and, and the armies that are sitting in those countries point their, are told to point their guns at their own people and not point their guns at the oppressors of the people of Gaza. Now, um, I firmly believe that actually if, if, the, if there was a, 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 a change of system in the Muslim world, it, the first thing it would be is independent of their sponsor powers in the West, whether they be United States, Britain or France. I think you would find a severance of that loyalty to a foreign power over and above the loyalty to their own people. Okay, that would be the first thing you'd find. The second thing is they would have to, I mean, I, they would have to intervene in, in using every means they have, whether political, economic, military, to try and rescue those people who are being massacred. There'd be no, no question about that. And the third thing is the kind of system that we envisage in the Muslim world is one that actually overrides issues of race okay it overrides it, we have very particular views on economy which which encourage what we call a, so, a circulation of wealth so it's uh, it's uh, everyone talks about islam as having a kind of welfare state because you've probably heard of this uh, this stipend we pay called zakat on our wealth uh, which is given to poor people but more than that Actually, things like what you would call state utilities, oil, gas, electricity, uh, public water supplies, these are actually meant to be in public ownership, not in private ownership. So every citizen, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, has a stake in those things. Yeah. And, and therefore, therefore, wealth doesn't concentrate in the hands of a few, but also it's not as... Uh, radical as maybe a socialist model is in terms of taxing people on on income and and these kind of things. So it's generally, you know, it is about taking surplus wealth from people that have it and encouraging them to circulate it. That small amount which is taken compulsorily, but a lot more that is actually encouraged in many different ways. So we do have a very different model to existing models today and. Actually, there is an appetite for it uh, in many opinion polls. There is many appetite for it because Islamic systems by the people are, are usually associated in the West. They're always portrayed as being harsh and authoritarian. But by people in the Muslim world, they're usually associated with one word. And that is justice. That is yeah. justice. Because if you truly believe that some, these laws are, are above any particular politician or party, they come from God, then they actually uh, sit above you. Even your head of state is accountable to them. And, and the mechanisms are there, and tried and tested in actually our history, where you can even challenge politicians and government when they fall short, according to the law. So we have a lot to offer. We do discuss it in this pressing, terrible, terrible time in terms of Palestine. We focus on what any state would and should do. And we encourage people in the Muslim world to call for their, their, their armed forces to be moved in to rescue the people. That's actually what got us a big backlash last week from the Telegraph and then later the Daily Mail. That's what they don't like me saying. All right. Mm. That's what I say. You know, if it, if it comes to it, some kind of uh, uh, professional inquiry to me, uh, 
that's what I will frame in terms of the fact, well, well, yeah. if somebody in the Conservative Party calls for military intervention in Ukraine to help the Ukrainians, you wouldn't have a problem with that. But when it mm. comes to somebody uh, for, who's a supporter of Palestine talking for military intervention in the region to rescue the people of Palestine, you have a big problem with that. For me, that mm. is a, a very reasonable political argument in this terrible time. It seems the most obvious thing. It's actually what's being called for on the Muslim street. There have been really, I, whenever there's been crises in Palestine, our party talks about this. This is almost the first time we've heard this being echoed in a popular way in the Muslim street. I mean, you're talking about in Egypt, even famous musicians and actors are saying, why aren't our armed forces intervening? Uh, General Sisi is, President Sisi is actually having to put out a lot of messages to his military saying, you know what, don't get over emotional, don't think that we can intervene at this point. Unheard of that he's having to mm -hmm. give out these, this messaging, which gives you a yeah. sign that maybe maybe things are not all that no, indeed. You know, Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak would like. And maybe that's why they keep trying to moderate Netanyahu. You know, yeah. It, it, yeah. there's all, a lot of messaging that's coming in the media that is saying that, you know, Biden, the West, America, Anthony Blinken, they're trying to moderate the massacres that are going on behind closed doors while endorsing them publicly. Well, mm -hmm. I think they realize things are not stable in the Middle East. And yeah. the more people carry on with this kind of genocidal activity it, under their noses, on their TV screens, on their phones, the more they will destabilize the Middle East. And that's then, as Scott Ritter said, potentially the end of the Israeli experiment. Well, he... it, it, absolutely. I mean, even before, I mean, we're sort of out of time now, but I mean, even before uh, this, this latest... Um scenario there uh, was a poll conducted for channel 13 in israel that suggested that 28 percent of israelis were considering leaving uh, i suspect that's considerably uh, higher now um but as uh, as uh, bob dylan sang in the in the early 1960s at times they are a changing and uh, let's hope they're changing for the better there's a few other things i wanted to uh, sort of talk to you didn't, about but we run he, out of time didn't he didn't didn't he also sing about masters of war he did, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, listen, uh, it would be good to perhaps have you back on because there's, there's quite a lot of other stuff that, you know, we'd like to, to talk about. It's a really interesting uh, discussion. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to, to join us perhaps, this perhaps, evening. Perhaps you, could, perhaps you could join us on one of our uh, YouTube shows as well. Yes, right? indeed. Indeed, indeed. That would be cool. Uh, just finally then, uh, Abdul, how can people sort of follow you then or uh, keep up with the sort of work that you're doing? Have you, have you got so, social media platforms? And I know you yeah, obviously, Lisbon uh, 3 has been closed down, but where, where can people find out what you're up to and what you're doing? So I'm still, I'm still, we've still got, I, I've still got my, we're still on, Hizbut Tahrir is still on Twitter, or X as it's called nowadays. I'm on Twitter, X, Abdul Wahid HT. I'm also still on Facebook, Abdul Wahid HT, and on Instagram. And we have a Hizbut Tahrir Britain website and YouTube channel. So have a look at our stuff there. Nice one, mate. That's great. Thanks very much indeed then, Abdul. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for watching this evening. Uh, that's it for tonight's show. Hopefully we'll be back next week at the same time. But until then, this is Chris Williamson saying bye for now.